This is Kevin Lavelle, and you're listening to Founders 15. You know what the world needs? Another business podcast. Well, actually, maybe it does. See, I've listened to a lot of podcasts, many of which were truly great. I learned a lot and had takeaways that changed my business or personal life. But I often noticed there was no commonality between the interviews as they were wide-ranging, so it was harder to tease out themes between them. I launched Mizzen in Maine to bring advanced performance fabrics to traditional menswear. So just like deciding the world needed a better dress shirt when everyone said it was crazy, I decided to launch Founders 15. Founders 15 is a unique new discussion experience, distinct in three specific ways. The conversations will be founder to founder, eliciting an enlightening back and forth of two people with an overlap rarely found in other interviews. In my position as founder of Mizzen and Maine, I've gotten to have extraordinary conversations with other founders, and I know that there are takeaways that a lot of people would benefit from. So episodes will also feature the same 15 main questions in each podcast, helping bring a continuity to these discussions with appropriate probing on key themes as they develop throughout the interview. Perhaps most distinctively, I'm focused primarily on founders building something right now, and not just the billion-dollar unicorns that get the headlines every day. These interviews feature real people building real businesses today. Business titans from years ago offer much to learn from, but my focus is on those in the heart of their journey to build something great. To keep things particularly interesting, I'll also be interviewing a few well-known athletes and coaches, founders in their own right, to gain additional insight and inspiration as to what it takes to achieve greatness. Would love to hear any feedback anytime. I'm on Twitter at Kevin S. Lavelle, and I hope you enjoy these conversations as much as I've enjoyed having them. If you don't want to run through walls and change the world after listening to this episode, then you must not have been paying attention. Anytime I'm around David Vibora, I am so inspired and fired up. David started Adaptive Training Foundation, which is a unique nonprofit that empowers those with physical disabilities to transform their lives through exercise and community. Mizzen and Maine dedicates all of its philanthropic giving to ATF as our commitment to give back to the veteran community, as many of those going through the program are veterans. David explains that ATF isn't a veteran-only organization because as society, we shouldn't view ourselves along that divide, veterans and civilians. We're all Americans and we're all human. We should reinforce and help each other. And there is power in that community and the bonds formed as people work hard to transform their lives. David's story is truly remarkable. Drafted as Mr. Irrelevant, his NFL career was cut short by injury and an overprescription of drugs that led to a scary addiction. Thankfully, like so many founders, his wife helped redirect his life and give him new purpose. It wasn't until he met Travis Mills, a quadruple amputee, that that new purpose really took shape. I'll stop there and let our conversation speak for itself. Please say hello to David on Instagram at David Vibora, D-A-V-I-D-V-O-B-O-R-A. And check out the life-changing work ATF is doing at Adaptive Training Foundation. So you are going to hear some background noise throughout this interview because we are here at Adaptive Training Foundation. And I am so excited to do another live interview, this time with a good friend, Dave Vibora, who started Adaptive Training Foundation a few years ago. And we'll hop right in. Dave, thanks for making some time. Yeah, thank you. You've been in a car all day. 
And now you're here and we're going to chat a little bit. And we're going to have a great conversation. Um, so let's just hop right in. Tell me about the launch story of ATF. What was it that made you say, I want to do this? And then what were some of the trigger points to, I'm not thinking about it, I'm actually doing it? What pushed you to take it to the next level? Yeah, I'd say it was an instinct. It was a gut prompt that said, you got to walk up to this guy without arms and legs and challenge him to work out with you. That guy was Staff Sergeant Travis Mills, a remarkable human being. And it, I think for me, I was in awe of the ability for him to move on prosthetics and do so in a way that um, I just knew his physicality was something probably for him that he's he struggled to identify with. And as a transitioning football player, I, I did not... Uh, really know my identity outside of the game. And so when I recognized this guy in Travis Mills and started to train him, I realized there was this big void post rehab. And so the, uh, the mother of invention is that necessity. And so I invited him in to work out and it instantly became an effect on everyone in the gym. They found a deeper potential. They stopped complaining about their pinky toe being sore. And therefore Travis was capable of being a catalyst, not in a way that was patronizing to him or, um, or insulting to those around him, but in a way that, that championed and elevated everyone's game. And so I said, man, there, there must be other things like this. I need to research this whole adaptive space. And there was nothing. And as I got deeper into it, it was like stale rehab stuff, or it was sort of patronizing to these guys because they want to go to the gym and get a workout like anyone else. And they get interrupted every two minutes with someone walking up and saying, you're such an inspiration. And that, that's flattering, but we got to go beyond that, right? Because the human uh, experience is consistent of feelings and emotions, regardless of circumstance. So what that prompt was, was seeing this guy without arms and legs. Then I did some research and there's over 10 million Americans with a physical disability. And where do people go? Cash runs out, insurance runs out, rehab ceases. Um, where do people go to better themselves? And for me, the gym's always been my sanctuary and it's been a place that physical pain was emotional purge. And when I didn't know who I was, I could still move and change the way that I felt, even if I felt like I was in this pit of depression. So it was therapy, it was medicine for me. And that's what I wanted to um, you know, use my passion to help better other people to shift their transition from hopefully a mindset of suffering into a mindset of purpose and opportunity. And so for a little bit more background, talk about the gym that you were running mm -hmm. that you invited Travis to come work out in yeah. and how you got to that point. Yeah. So I met a Navy SEAL, Clint Bruce, amazing, amazing figure and, and just personality that's more than a man, that's for sure. And I opened up the gym, the performance vault, training elite athletes, mostly Olympic guys, college guys getting ready for pros. And it was in his garage, basically. It was in the back of his, his Navy SEAL security company. And um, I, was, I was in a locker room feel again, which is what I miss most from the locker room in the NFL. And you know, for me to, to close the gap for people, the gap between who they thought they were and who they dared to become, that's what excites me. Um, and that's my measure of success. It's not so much based around worldly measures of, of monetization as it is significance. And when I see somebody focus less on what they can't do and then use what they can do to start to change and, and progress what they can't do, like those are people I want to do life with, no matter if that's in business, right? If, if that's in the gym, if that's in their personal life, those that are willing to share their scars are proof that they can go beyond them. So I think that where this thing all started is in this gritty, rusty garage shoot house uh, with a bunch of kind of alphas that were like, hey, 
what is this vulnerability thing? I don't like it, but when it happens, like I, I get even more brave and more courageous and people around me are bettering themselves too. So we've got some type of a recipe and a culture here that is progressing people. <clears throat> that's, that's extraordinary. And so there you were with, um, with Travis mm-hmm. pushing him and you said, I got to take this to the next level. How long until adaptive training foundation became a real thing? And then here we are in this incredible new facility mm-hmm. that is here training. I think there's what a dozen folks out there right now. Yeah, There's actually 15, <clears throat> um, wounded veterans that are all training as a group of a military, the mountains program. We train them for nine weeks. Then we redeploy them to uh, Tahoe. We go adaptive skiing and snowboarding and send it down the mountain. That's that's amazing. So we're, we're here in this, this new facility. It's a gym that would rival Equinox. And I know that was what, something that you set out to build, but it's been a long journey to get to this point. So Travis to open, mm-hmm. uh, the concept of ATF yeah. and you've been in three or four gyms since then. And yep. we're here. What are some of those, the major things that pushed you forward along the way to, to let's bring a couple of these guys in and really help change their lives to now this is your life's work. Yeah. I looked, there was no Mark Zuckerberg or the social sector, right? There was no (laughs) Silicon Valley of social entrepreneurship. And so I'm bold enough, perhaps arrogant enough to want to be that guy and to say, Hey, look, we didn't start this adaptive movement. The Paralympics were out, but Martin Luther King didn't start this civil rights movement, but he's synonymous with it at every glance in history. So for me, I realized, wow, what we were doing qualitatively was working. And so I created quantifiable measures because that's how you scale, yep. right? With excellence, it's gotta be repeatable. And I realized if I got hit by a bus that this thing would stop. So the truth of this matter is I started a charity, but I don't believe in charity. Charity is a great way to seed funding, to seed capital and some people that believe in you, right? But then you have to broaden that and you have to be fiscally responsible enough to realize like I needed a train the trainer model. I need a methodology to assess and train this population in a way that empowered them, equipped them with a quality of life impact and with an opportunity to seize goals, to get out and be active and to adventure and to do things in, in the world and in nature that really taps into a deeper resonance of self, a different identity, a redefinition of self. Um, But what started with this nine-week program has now broadened where we have uh, restore, recalibrate, redeploy. They come in, they get an opportunity at Hope Restored through this program, an opportunity to recalibration with their peers as they, um, they go in through this individualistic training program, all of their meals are provided for them. Basically, what I experienced as a college athlete going out to prepare for the NFL Combine optimization under one roof. Hey, here's your food. Here's your program. Here's your stretches. Here's your therapy. Uh, you just come to work. Let us do all the worrying. Yep. Um, and that's what we prepare there. That, that's what we equip them with. And then there's this opportunity for them to shift their perspective. The idea that pain is inevitable and suffering is optional, right? The old adage that we've all heard in sports and often in the gym, you know, these athletes have endured pain at a level that you and I could never fathom. And I've had some injuries, you've had some injuries, but the truth is these, these people no longer suffer because they realize that there's, there's purpose in their pain. And you know, that's where I think, okay, great. Now we have a program. I'm able to bring in volunteer trainers that are, you know, really making good money around DFW doing what they do at Equinox and other performance gyms. And they were like, look, I don't need paid because I want to serve these people. Mm -hmm. And so through it, we created a scalable model and then we bounced around the Metroplex as nomads basically going, Look, the, the world has enough gyms, brick and mortars. Mm-hmm. Um, but if we can affiliate, if we can certify trainers nationally, we can start to answer to the call of 10 million Americans with a physical disability yep. and community done well. So uh, one really defining factor was um, this guy named Howard Schultz. 
Uh, I've heard of him. Starbucks, right? He knows a little bit about scalability. Um, You know, Howard found out about the story in season one, Upstanders, which is a a social innovation um, storytelling component of what Starbucks does. Mm -hmm. They highlighted a story of me stopping in a parking lot when I saw a guy, Lance Corporal Brian Aft, a Marine who had no legs, and I stopped and challenged him to work out. And at the time... You know, no one really knew the story, but that was a huge plume. A week later, there was like 70 million views of that video. Mm-hmm. And then we flew to uh, the White House to meet with Obama and talk about this. I said, look, there's an ADA parking spot out of, sort of, out of a, a large corporate gym. But what about an ADA certified trainer in every gym in America? You want to talk about community done well, right? Our gym is agnostic of race, gender, sexual preference, political belief, I, whatever it is, veteran, civilian, amputee, spinal cord injury. This is community done well. And we took down all the mirrors. Because you're not here to look at yourself, you're here to work on yourself. We've got guys like Rex Burkhead, starting running back for the Patriots, training alongside a guy that is a quadriplegic. And Rex is patiently waiting for that equipment mm-hmm. to get onto, and that quadriplegic is like, holy crap, Rex is waiting for me to finish. Mm-hmm. So it, it's kind of like, hey, leave your ego at the door, mm-hmm. and let's champion people uh, that kind of want to believe that impossible is only an opinion. That is the ethos here. And now that we have this beautiful 20,000 square foot facility, this is a hub. Mm-hmm. It is the, you know, the centrifuge for us to spin out. It's kind of the laboratory. We're testing these new methods and these new things that we can um, be able to publish and be able to really kind of be on the forefront of this educational component for this population. Um, but that's going to allow us to do what we've done like at Arizona State University um, on their Sun Devil Fitness Center. We've got a little small area inside of their 250,000 square feet that runs a program synonymous with our nine weeks. Mm-hmm. We're popping up in Denver, Stedman Hawkins, uh, where you got Craig Hospital, Spinal Cord Elite Spinal Cord Center, mm-hmm. the Olympic Training Center. So the model is um, let's train trainers nationally to be our disciples. That'll tell us the, where those gyms are already built so we don't have a huge overhead and they can be our affiliates, which will eventually lead to our feasibility study, which will tell us where to franchise, true chapter plants. Mm-hmm. And that is the model for recurring revenue, not Knock, knock, knock. Hey, I'm poor. I'm charity. Here, cue the Sarah McLaughlin commercial or a song, right? And then all of a sudden it gets people's hearts. Like, no, if people are passionate because they see this, it is a visible, visceral nonprofit. And it's innovative because it's like a mirror into your soul. It asks, hey, what is it that you're leaving on the table because you've got some excuses? <clears throat> yeah, I've got, I've got plenty of excuses. <laughs> I'm, I'm, uh, I'm trying to think through... Uh, a time that I actually felt bad for myself in the gym. I'm, I'm thinking about, um, you've got a couple, you've got a couple truisms here in the gym. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got that box where you can go and stand yeah. and feel sorry for box. Your, yeah. Can you describe the sympathy box? It, it's a white box taped off on the ground that says sympathy box. And it says your excuses are invalid. Um, we say, if you want sympathy, you can go stand in the box cause you're not going to get it anywhere else in the gym. And then what happens if you go stand in the you box? You get stuff thrown at you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There you go. And I would imagine for a guy like Rex, he has his own challenges. I mean, pressure's on. He's performing yeah. at an elite level. This is a pretty humbling place for him. Yeah. Well, I think that the idea of our iron sharpening iron mm-hmm. is like the iron doesn't have to look the same. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't have to have the same bank account. It can just be the fact that, man, you're a living, breathing human doing all you can to better yourself. Those are the type of people I want to hang out with. And the scars are actually the qualifying factors, the things that you want to hide. When you talk about, you know, think about um, your greatest mentors. It's typically because of EQ, right? It's not the tactical, technical skills or the IQ things that that resonate with you that cause the biggest standard deviations of change in your business or your life. And one of the things I deeply respect about you, Kevin, not only the way that you'll kick ass in the gym, because you do, but 
Used to. <laughs> the gratitude stuff. Your practice in that. Now, the way you export it is very different than the way I do. I do it in a much more esoteric hippie. I'm from Eugene, Oregon uh, <laughs> way. But, but the way that you're very um, methodical and accountable to that practice is everything. And so, you know, part of this program is giving them tools. Uh, some of them physical, but many of them is what we've done in our mindfulness portion of our program. Pre and post session, they do a mindfulness exercise, intention setting, goal setting. We work, we try to find the reason behind the reason that is the self-defeating principle. We have these root meetings where we lock in all the athletes and just the staff and we talk about those things. Like a guy may be going home every night reaching for a bottle of bourbon and the bourbon may be a problem, but it's really the reason behind the reason why he needs it. And as we unearth those things, we see like, well, like people think, like I'm not the pastor of the mega church. You can't touch me and be healed. I, I am an ordinary dude who uh, knows that. But you're beautiful too. Well, <laughs> I have overcome a dog bite to the face this yes. last year. Just yes. had a neck surgery. This was the the facial scar year for me in 2018. So hopefully, got to bring you down to our level. <laughs> so you, we can't touch you and be healed. You can't. Uh, and the the fact of the matter is that they. If you treat people broken, they act broken, right? If you look them in their eye and you treat them like a whole person, they rise up. And so what we're doing is we're basically showing them a reflection of the way we see them until they see themselves that same way. And that's, that's a message for, I don't care if it's depression, obesity, addiction, whatever, we will write down these fears or these things and then we'll go out back and burn them. And we do it as a part of a community that says, hey, if I see you pick up that part that makes you feel guilt or shame, I'm going to call you out on it. Right? Because that's going to be a limiting factor to all, everywhere you want to go and the people that are going to be uh, uh, benefiting from witnessing what you're about. Inspiration, motivation washes off. But if that becomes aspiration, you can apply it in your life. So we hopped right in because I know your story so well, and I was so excited to hear you tell mm -hmm. the ATF story. And I skipped over the most important part, which is um, some level setting. And it's been a couple of weeks since I've done the podcast because I just had a baby and the end of the year and all that stuff. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, I'm out of tune. That's truth in advertising here. So <laughs> let's let's backpedal for just a second. Sure. Talk to me about your family yeah. and uh, those most important things in life. Give a, give the listeners a little bit of uh, a little bit of your backstory, which you know we've covered, and and uh, the NFL to to the performance vault. But um, talk to me about Sarah. Talk to me about the kids yeah. and um, your life here in Dallas. Yeah, that's the core right there. Those are the pillars. Um, my wife. So I, I went to school at the University of Idaho. It was my only Division One offer. Uh, ended up being drafted, Mister Irrelevant. Last pick in 2008 draft, became a starter rookie year for the Rams, uh, ended up ending my career with the Seahawks. And as a result of that pretty nasty catastrophic shoulder injury that did end my career, um, I, it was just easier to cope with the pain medication and, and drugs than it was to think about life after football. And I went through a nasty spiral, ended up in drug detox, lost 34 pounds in, wow. in seven days, had two seizures. At one point, tried to pick up this plate of food. I couldn't even hold it. It shattered on the ground. And, and as the nurses rushed in, um, I was ashamed, literally spirit broken. And I was scraping up lumps of, of tuna casserole and broken plate with my bare hands. And the nurses rushed in and they restrained me uh, for fear that I was going to try to use the broken plate to try to kill myself. And this is just weeks prior I was running uh, down the field on kickoff at CenturyLink Field for the Seahawks. So you think about that contrast. Mm -hmm. But that, that bottom for me was the grist of everything I'm doing today. It's not in spite of that that mm -hmm. I am. It's because of that that I am where I am. And most importantly, because of the woman I had by my side. And at that time, it was my girlfriend. Uh, but now Sarah Vibora is my wife. And uh, we have two beautiful girls that are now five and three. 
And even when I say that, if you treat people broken, they act broken, peace. That came from my, my girls, it did. My oldest, when she was two, she was too scared to go up to the door to trick or treat. And so she sat on Brian Aft, a corporal of the Marine Corps. He has no legs, above the amputee on both sides. She sat on his lap and he would wheel her up. And so they don't see disability. It gave me even more confidence to boldly come up to people and say, man, what, what happened? And what do you want to do about it? You know, because I believe in all people being an athlete, whether they thought of themselves as one or not. So I remember, you know, I, you can tell I'm not passionate about this stuff at all. <laughs> uh, I am known to being so full head in that I have the blinders on uh, for this. And it happened in my football career. And if I've learned anything, my wife has very lovingly reminded me um, that that great attribute can become a weakness. And it was about a year and a half, two years in, I was still trying to manage the for-profit gym. Um, I wasn't taking any money from the foundation, didn't for the first two years, um, set a goal of, of having to raise a big chunk of money before that would even happen. And, you know, look, my wife worked that allowed us to stay even kind of financially. I had a little bit of money saved from football. Obviously, Mr. Irrelevant wasn't on any huge contracts. <laughs> um, but I came home one night at about 2 a.m. because I was still trying. I was like sleeping at yoga mats on the, at the, on the gym floor. I mean, doing whatever it was to manage way too full of a plate. And I remember coming home and there was this like one light on over the, the dining table. And it was kind of that like interrogation room feel. And I looked around and I go, oh God. And my wife was sitting there at the table, calm and collected. And I sat down and she just looked me in the eyes and said, do I have to be missing an arm or a leg for you to be spending the same type of focus and attention on me and the girls? Damn. <sighs> Damn. But <clears throat> yeah. it wasn't to throw a jab at me. No, no. She was all. right. And I looked at her and I said, hey, look, I, mean, I got goosebumps right now. Yeah. Uh, I said, look, I'm not perfect, but I'll be, I'll be better every day that passes. And I have been. And I think that just that awareness, that, that broadening of my own perspective to realize that I was so hell-bent on making this a success that it was actually, I was losing out on the things that were most important. And so the core of that now is, is making sure that A, I have people to hold me accountable and keep me in check, and that my goals and my vision, one of my mentors said this to me, and it kicked me right in the balls. I said, you know, God doesn't need you to do this. And I was like, wait, but we're restoring hope through movement. We've built this community and people like, this is what I would consider Jesus waded into the water with people that thought they were broken and he healed and there was all this. And I'm not saying I'm that, but what do you mean that this isn't important? And he's like, if you were thinking of it as a scoreboard like football, you've already lost. And if you want to recognize that, you know, you're a conduit of hope and through you, things can happen, but your ego can't have a part in it. That's when suddenly there's going to be a force multiplier for the greater good. So as a result of Howard Schultz and Starbucks, Obama, the White House going on Ellen show, President Bush coming here, I can humbly tell you that none of that is because of David Vibora. It is because of the population that I serve, their indomitable spirit and their capability to really Dig into our souls without a word being necessary. That you remember it's that Maya Angelou. People don't remember what you say. They remember how you made them feel. And if I'm in an environment that I experience in that, yeah, these people inspire me on a daily basis, but it converts in my life into something that I can actually apply with consistency. A friend of mine, uh, Brent Bishore, he's pretty active on Twitter. He's a great guy, great investor, a great businessman. He was, uh, he posted a, a couple, it was probably a year or two ago, and I haven't forgotten it. He said, if you're struggling uh, in a relationship, in your work, in whatever it is, um, think about just serving that other person, um, being a better husband, being a better leader, being a better business person, being a better volunteer, mm -hmm. and things will find a way of working themselves out. 
And as you said, those strengths can become weaknesses because you are serving so intensely, you let that slip at home. Yeah. And when you had that wake up call, as you said, it wasn't that your wife was trying to kick you in, in the groin. <laughs> yeah. um, but when you had that wake up call, it was, I just need to focus on being better to that person. Yeah. And it's not uh, a linear progression. There's mm -hmm. those up and downs. And I think any, any business leader, um, any community leader, any, any uh, nonprofit leader, they're going to have those moments where they get so sucked into the mission yeah. that they forget the things at home. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's a universal consideration. Ja Jamie Diamond, I am honored to have JP Morgan as a sponsor here. And Jamie, I get the opportunity to go and speak for JP, uh, JP Morgan at these, some of these quarterly uh, leadership events. And one that I just recently was asked, I was able to ask Jamie afterwards. I said, the number one most singular thing that you would tell anyone that's young, that has, has a lot of motivation to go and grow and create, what is it? He said, master your calendar be the master of your calendar and let it be unapologetic and non-negotiable. Make sure you have your things that are non-negotiable in your life set so that when everything comes crashing down, you know, there's a nature in the entrepreneur that said the more momentum picks up, the more success happens to really throttle into it. It's actually counterintuitive. And I'd love for you to speak to this, but it's counterintuitive to think that actually I should slow down. I should create more space when things are accelerating one for self-care so that you can, you like, you can't pour from an empty cup, right? You, you have to pour from the overflow. And so you got to have your priorities with your family. Those that are priorities in your life, there's a healthy selfish. And then you also have to do so to make sure that there's not scope creep to let the good things rob you of the great. Mm -hmm. And I know I'm guilty of a lot of that. So I don't know if you should talk to anything, you've got a crazy schedule as well. And how do you manage that? I have not even sort of mastered it, but I've gotten a lot better. And, it, and it's listening to podcasts. It's talking to guys like you. It's talking to mentors. Um, there's a few things that come to mind as you talk about that master your calendar. Um, the I don't remember where it came from, but they talked about measuring in measuring your day in minutes hmm. rather than hours or chunks of time. And that's pretty profound. And, and it, in taken to the extreme, you can drown in it. But if you also think about each minute that goes by, what did you do with that? And, and, um, so I actually have my day broken out into 15 minute increments hmm. and it, it allows me, here's my focus time. Here's my meeting time. Here's my open meeting time where I can have calls with folks outside, yeah. um, the office. I travel a lot, which makes that 15 minute increment really hard <laughs> mm -hmm. and makes flight delays even more painful. Mm -hmm. Um, but the, the other thing, um, Naval Ravikant, uh, who is a prolific investor and, and brilliant to listen to, um, he, he basically said, I learned, and it sounds selfish and it sounds like he doesn't have his priorities in order. And I would argue it's quite the opposite. I had to take care of myself mm -hmm. in order to take care of my family, mm -hmm. in order to be able to take care of my business. Yeah. And so <clears throat> if I'm not sleeping, if I'm not getting the appropriate level of physical fitness and there's sacrifices that you, you make, you, you can't do everything all the time. If I'm not eating right, then I can't be a good husband and a good father. No. And that's far more important than being a business leader or yeah. an investor yeah. or speaker or any of those yeah. things. And so um, it doesn't mean that you just push your family aside until you feel like you're ready for the day, yeah. but you have to make those decisions along the way. Those are those things that it's the small sacrifices. It's the saying no to things that you really might like to. Yeah. Um, I, I, uh, I think the I, one of the common themes I've heard through these interviews and one of the questions we'll ask later is sacrifice. One of the most consistent sacrifices I've heard amongst founders and, and business leaders is it's usually uh, friends and extended family that you end up having to um, 
say no to the most so that you can take care of yourself, your family and your business. Um, and, and it's hard because you, you love those people and you want to spend time with them, but you can't, you can't master, you can't make more hours in a day. Um, but one of the biggest things I've faced over the last year is I need more sleep. And if I'm not sleeping, then nothing else really seems to matter. And the more you squeeze the brain, right, the harder it is to allow the creative, the the amazing dot connections, right? Unless that brain has the capability to to render itself shut down, right? And then re-upload new hardware. One of my mentors said to me, um, you know, DV, I'm guessing in everything that you do, you focus on quality over quantity. He goes, the only thing I tell you in your life to switch that is time with your, uh, your, your kids, mm-hmm. your, your girls and your direct family, right? And it was like, whoa, he's right. Because the truth is, is if I show up in quantity, they just need me there. It doesn't have to be going to do something all the time. It's just like, I've thought of more, I've figured out more business model things, coloring unicorn <laughs> pictures with my little girls or getting my nails painted by them and going, oh, holy crap. And I grab a crayon to draw out exactly yep. the org structure. And I, cause I'm like, I figured it out. You, it, space matters, create space. Yeah. Um, well, we're 25 minutes into this. We could probably have this be an hour long conversation, but I'll push, mm-hmm. I'll push us forward. Um, how do you define the culture of ATF? And I would imagine you have a unique approach here because in some ways it's different for your staff versus the athletes that come through the program. Yeah. And in many ways it's the same. So talk to me about the ATF culture. Yeah. I'd say the, the externally facing part is that we want to defy the impossible. You know, again, the doctor that maybe gave you the diagnosis, uh, has a lot of schooling, but they're not God. Uh, and we want to challenge within the rights of being mindful and, and making sure we're not hurting people. Uh, but we want to really push back against everything we thought was possible. And we're open to that paradigm being shifted on a daily basis. And that's an exciting place to go to work and to serve people through. Then I'd say internally with my staff, actually behind me on this whiteboard, truth is where words and actions meet. Like ideas and words are so cheap. And there's, you know, this year, this day and age, the, the consumer, the way that we're inundated, the globalization of communication has allowed us to have so many YouTube coaches and Instagram trainers and all of that. And you just, you got to sift through that to see where there's, where, where the truth will eliminate the false. And I think that the part, the athlete always comes first here. I do not make a decision unless it's number one, benefiting the athlete. Um, the other day, and again, I'm running a business too, right? So there was a talk about this train the trainer, our certification, what we're unveiling as it becomes accredited in the marketplace this year, um, where people are like, dude, this feels a little bit too clinical, right? And I'm always balancing that pendulum swinging back and forth. Um, and one of my athletes said, Hey, if, if this is what I'm doing, this is not actually like, these are my goals. Do you think that those are the same? And I had to own my humble pie, took a big old bite. And I said, you know what? You're right. I wasn't putting your goals first. And I said, look, we're going to address this and we're going to change this. The good news is we hadn't started his program yet. And he had the trust and the love for me to be willing to voice it. And I think that's the point of any culture. Like when we communicate here, you, you may see someone across the gym talking and then somebody standing in front of them and waving their hand in their face until they stop talking because that person is talking about somebody who's not there. If somebody's gossiping, somebody's talking about somebody to somebody else and that person's not there, you will literally see somebody wave their hand in their face until they stop talking and the person will stop and go, what are you doing? And that person will say, hey, dude, why don't you just go talk to them about it? Mm-hmm. Now, sometimes there's some assholes in here that placate a little bit and sure. I'll see somebody doing it. But that's the thing is it, it can't be a mandate. It needs to be something that's an internal culture that they can police themselves. And where I find that those actions and or those words and actions meet, 
that's where the people that I want to be like, man, we can do something here. We can do something prolific here. You mentioned it earlier um, about starting the gym and, you know, scraping by and it was on your on your wife's salary. Mm-hmm. And I did that with Mizzen for several years as well. Yeah. How long did you go until you started paying yourself um, something close to a quote unquote normal salary? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, you were an NFL athlete, so that's not normal. Sure. And uh, <laughs> whatever position you were drafted, that's not normal. Yeah. Um, and then you're running an elite gym and that's a different type of normal as yeah. compared to wherever you could put your talents to you. So for what you think would be close to normal for ATF salary, how yeah. long did that take? It was almost two years. Um, and during that time, uh, I moved to Dallas, right? And the Sean Lee, their outstanding linebacker got hurt and the Cowboys called and I'll never forget it. Clint Bruce, that Navy SEAL I mentioned earlier, he's sitting in my office and I hung up the phone and he said, well, who's that? And I said, oh, it was the Cowboys. They want me to they want me to come over. And he kind of looked at me like, I, I, it was just in a little bit of a daze kind of. And he said, do you want me to tell you what I think you're thinking? I said, yes, sir. He said, I don't think you want to push pause on what you're doing here. And I, he said, football is familiar, but this is, this is different. And I picked up my phone. I called my agent and I said, I'm retired. And that is the last time I thought about football. I'll be real with you. A couple of times I thought about maybe the paychecks that would have been a little better than nonprofit land. Yeah. Um, but I'm clear on that decision. I know in my gut, my heart that I had turned that chapter. Yeah, maybe I had snaps left, but there's no regret. And so there's no regret in the fact that the early days, I told a lot of people, they said, make this just veterans. I'm like, no, I've seen these civilians, right? I've seen the veteran civilian divide bridged when the veteran teaches the civilian about grit, sacrifice, teamwork, right? And then the civilian teaching the veteran that, yeah, they're geographically home, but they're not all the way to home until they have a tribe and a new ridgeline, right? A community and a purpose to realize that like the veteran that says, oh, you just don't understand, right? All these civilians, they don't understand. It's like, but do you want them to? At some point they're like, oh, no, you're right. I'm like, so the truth is, is these, these civilians teach these veterans that they're not far from reintegrating in society. Mm-hmm. And together that's, that's that community done well. So the fact that I didn't take a paycheck, I don't know if I consider it a sacrifice because it was, it was clear to me that it was a call. You know what I'm saying? There's a difference in a sacrifice that I consider like a trade-off. Mm-hmm. It was a very tactical decision to go, I'm not going to take any salary until we raise a half a million bucks. And then I took a $50,000 salary and we had no health insurance and we had, I had one employee at the time. She got pregnant and I didn't have to pay her maternity leave. I have two little girls though. And my, the truth is, is if I hire a woman on my staff, she's going to get maternity leave. Yep. Whether I'm mandated to do it or not, because it's the right thing to do. I think sometimes we... We find these outs to, to, to rationalize or to kind of relatively say, well, I can pass the buck here and I'm okay to do so. Legally. Legally. The yep. legal thing trumps often the things that's the right thing to do. And, um, you know, the, the, the money side of this thing is trying to figure out, again, I, I don't love the charity model because people pay people peanuts and there's tons of turnover, right? And there's just not a really, it's just not a good business model. I'd rather go deep with a few and treat and treat and pay them in a way that is looking at this as good business. The fact that we happen to have a 501c3 status is just a benefit for us to be able to do more in a very, um, you know, kind of unique model. So it wasn't a sacrifice for me. Although there was times where, yeah, I mean, things were tight and we wanted to do some things or move or whatever. And we didn't. Um, but man, today, all of the things that have helped me because of this thing being a charity are so much more significant. 
before we move on, I want to go back to the maternity leave question because it's amazing um, that team member is still with you today, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. One of your closest, mm -hmm. longest serving team members mm -hmm. on this mission. Mm -hmm. And it's not because you gave her maternity leave. That's That wasn't a trigger for her to stay with what, what you've built here. Right. Um, and w the third or fourth person we hired at Mizzen in Maine, I extended her the job offer. And she said, okay, well, I, I need to tell you, um, I, I just found out I'm pregnant yesterday. And so if, if you no longer, you know, want, want to hire me, I, I completely understand. And I kind of laughed and I said, I, first, I, I think that is illegal. Um, <laughs> so I'm not even going to look it up, but I'll just move past that. Yeah. And it's, I wanted you to come work for us. And, um, I, I don't, Come on, let's yeah. go. And we did give her some maternity and we made it work for her. And sure. as she navigated how hard it is to come back to work and childcare and, and we made it work. Yeah. And she is one of the people who matters most to me in life yeah. and the things that she has done for us as a company. And it, it's, it's indescribable when you do the right thing net net over time, it, everything works out well, and it certainly creates a tribe. Yeah. And certainly you can. You can say, well, you know, the costs and some people are going to abuse it. And yeah, that's true. And it was hard, but yep. especially as early as we were, yep. but ultimately the bond that we have and the things that she's helped us do are worth 10 times more than the maternity leave challenge that we faced. Well, the roles and responsibilities, again, a team is a roster. Mm -hmm. I've been on a lot of teams, right? It's an organizational chart, roles, responsibilities, these things, but it, that tribe, how I define it is, and you mentioned Tim Ferriss, and, and, and I think that that tribe of mentors book is phenomenal for people that are looking for little ways to create significant change in their life. Um, the tool for me is that I, I empower people to show up for their why underneath the larger umbrella, because the most impaired athlete, the newest team member, the least experienced, that person is an integral part to the sum of the whole tribe. And when you empower people to show up as that, and the sort of open vulnerability of that, what happens is this culture, this camaraderie, and the people are capable of going farther than they thought was possible. They're not clocking out. Mm -hmm. It's a lifestyle thing. And that's what you built as a result of betting on people. Yep. And yeah, maybe you'll get it wrong on occasion. Mm -hmm. But when you do, it just better affirms what you know to do right the next time. We had a conversation as a leadership team a few weeks ago. Um, trying to kind of map and outline what our core capabilities are as a business. And it's actually a much harder exercise than you would think because <clears throat> capabilities are something that are durable. It's not an individual person. Yeah. It's something that makes your company uniquely capable or, or uniquely uh, positioned to achieve greater success. Right. And one of the things that was universally identified was our company culture. And it's not something that can be replicated. It's it's durable, it's not mm -hmm. one person. Mm -hmm. um, and it's because of how we treat each other. It's because of the bond that we have to work hard and produce great results. And um, again, net net over time, we've had people abuse that. Yeah. And it's part of the process, yeah. people are people. Yeah. Um, but treating team members the right way is never a wrong decision. Yep. And it's so amazing to me, some really well-known companies, oftentimes run by women who have really bad maternity policies yeah. and no sense of understanding that sometimes babysitters or daycare or whatever, you know, uh, grandma or grandpa can't watch the kid that day. Now what do you do? And then you have to take a sick day and, you know, gotta, gotta keep track of those sick days. And yep. all of a sudden people feel like they're living under 
some sort of dictatorial rule. Yeah. Well, it's transactional at that point. Yeah. You know, the idea of, hey, look, we need this behavior to create this result. That's management, right? It is lighting a fire under people and doing all this. Mm -hmm. The truth is, is, if you rise above that, you create a new experience mm -hmm. that shapes a different belief, that changes the behavior, that now changes the result. That top down is called leadership. It's mm -hmm. called empowerment. And you do it once. You do it well once mm -hmm. rather than trying to every single time you put on a new team member or a new whatever, your standard operating procedure is like, no, Stacy, we need this. Right? Mm -hmm. Oh, now you're pregnant. Like, you, th that stuff, just, it won't happen if you set the standard of doing the right thing. So um, knowing that this can't be a four hour conversation, I'm going to push <laughs> us forward. Who most inspired you? Oh, gosh, that is just a laundry list. I can roll the scroll out right now. I, I would say this, the... The athletes here, no doubt. Um, and in a way that gave me permission to do something for myself that I wasn't willing to early on. You know, I was, I was sexually abused as a 10 year old boy. Um, and it took me, it took me 10 years, actually two decades to be willing to take that, the mask off, to be willing to open up about that. And similar to the piece with addiction and that kind of bottom for me, the, this thing was, today I have, such an opportunity to share that um, with a clarity to understand that that has happened to many of the people that I serve um, in various effects. Sometimes it's just their own self-abuse uh, with drugs or alcohol. They're, they're numbing something. And that, that stuff for me is the, is the best way to show that I'm human and to be able to show a connectability with these athletes. And that part is the scar that I think now is, is, Put it this way, I started this foundation, this organization, to seemingly serve people uh, that thought they were broken. And it wasn't until they gave me the confidence to actually offer the compassion that I was offering them to myself, then I, became to pour, I, I began to pour from something that had a limitless uh, yeah. cup. And that was when I suddenly found a groove that I'm like, whoa, this is, doesn't have to be hard. It can be intense, but it doesn't have to deplete me to benefit others. And so it was about two years into this that they gave me the permission. So who inspires me? Um, I, all of my mentors do, but these athletes are the the palpable fixation for me that every single day I'm like, wow, look at that person facing a fear that they're advancing into that fear. And through that comes a freedom and a fulfillment and a new acknowledgement of, of a self that's growing. They shed that skin every day that becomes the necessary platform to step up. And that's like, that's it. I, I want that inspiration to be something that converts. Like I said, cause you can chase adrenaline rushes, right? You can chase, uh, podcasts and books for inspiration, but it's about what, what you apply and test out in your life. And if it's not this globalized experience driven, um, opportunity for you, then you're just kind of gaining head knowledge and you're not actually putting it into to practice and earning those, the sweat equity, the sweat psychology of putting it into to motion. So you, you talked about that kind of limitless cup. How, how do you stay sane to keep pouring in? Because I've known you for years. I don't see you often enough, yeah. but you're never not just a massive ball of energy. And mm -hmm. you and I both know that that's not 24 seven. It's not possible. Yeah. Um, but not only are you a massive ball of energy, you're a massive ball of positive energy. That's always helping lift other people up. Mm -hmm. And there are those moments in the car or at home where you're, you're beat down. It's a long day. What do you do to stay sane? I know you draw inspiration from others. And when you're here in this gym, it's real hard to feel bad about yourself, mm -hmm. but there's still a routine. There's, there's things that you have to do to keep yourself grounded and healthy. Yeah. I think sane sanity to me is not balance. 
uh, I think that balance is something that I'm always like, oh man, I'll just make my greatest skills, my greatest skills. And they'll, I'll ride those out and, you know, perfect my weaknesses where I can. I think today, you know, these athletes, when they come into our program, their body position, their posture sucks. And they, at orientation, they'll say stuff like, I just want to feel normal again. I'll kind of whisper it. I'm like, Hey, if I came up to you to give you a compliment, right. And I just said, Hey man, you're, you're real normal. Who wants to be called normal? That's not, that's a backhanded slap in the face. But what about uncommon? And I kind of see sane, insane, like you can call me crazy, but I'm just different than you. You know, the way that I expend energy is through divine breath. It's inspirata, it's inspiration and enthusiasm comes from a place that's not just what you eat, drink and how you sleep. I think the moments when I have to, like any hardware device, right, plug back in, hitch back up to the, the source, um, is where I take these unique sabbaticals. Um, I've done some in brain centers um, for a month or more, more, where I've wanted to learn about the executive functioning of my brain. I have um, thickening of the frontal cortex, a lesion on the left side of my brain. I had seven recorded concussions, probably another 50 plus of small ones that accumulated over my career. Um, and all that pre-CTE symptoms to me is an advantage for me, not a disadvantage. And so to those that are listening, man, you got to realize that the the thing that you feel like is the limiting factor played correctly, like a poker, right? You, you can bluff real well with a bad hand. And that's the, that's the message that I stand for. It's, it's to be a person who, uh, the manic side of me, I can ride. And it is part of the grist of the good stuff. But then as the, I hit those lows, I know now how to reset. So I get into nature. I surf, I climb, I do, I'm about to do Kilimanjaro. I'm always moving, but I'm moving in a direction that sometimes is by myself to hit that recharge button to then come back into the fold. And that's, I, I have to have that. My morning practice, I get up at 4.50. By 5 a.m., I'm doing my meditation. It's non-negotiable. It's 10 to 15 minutes, always. I come out of that, I eat, um, I work out, and then I have about 30, 40 minutes before my kids get up. I, they're up and I cook them breakfast and I'm out of the door by 7.30 when they head to school and I'm coming up here to the gym to invest in my staff. That is consistent. After they go to bed at night, I mean, I get to bed as early as I possibly can. There's some nights that I can't do it before midnight. Other nights, like last night, I went to bed at like 8.15. Oh, that sounds amazing. Right? <clears throat> I needed so, it. <laughs> that's a perfect segue into if you could be gone for a month uh, away from it all. And I'm going to say you're not allowed to go learn stuff. You, mm -hmm. you're, this is an escape from all of the day-to-day -day of the business. What yeah. would you do for a month away from it all, knowing that your team's got it here, yeah. you don't have anything to worry about? It'd be the ocean, man. It'd be surfing. Uh, I've done a couple of meditation retreats. One was a silent meditation retreat, the hardest thing I've ever done, um, <laughs> but worth it. Man. How long did you have to stay silent? Five days. And one time I walked past the yoga instructor at this place and she's like, oh, you, I can tell that you're good at going a hundred percent, but you do not know how to go 60%. And I couldn't say anything back. And I was like, what does that ever mean? I don't even, you know, it was this like, when I can talk, we're going to have a conversation. That's what I was saying with my eyes. Could you write things down? You could, I think it was frowned upon because okay, like, you get it. like vowed in by like the shaman yeah. guy that's there. And I, I where was this? Uh, this is actually about an hour north. It's in Wyndham, Texas. I was thinking far. this was going to be in Southeast Asia. No, no, no. no. This, sure. this, north is in, Texas. this is in South, yeah, Southeast <laughs> Asia, Texas. Yep. Um, it, it, it was, I did not do the, the fast. I think the two together, I would have just imploded. <laughs> um, but it's funny because you, you start the things that come up. I challenge anyone listening, even if they just walk to a mirror right now. I challenge you to stare at yourself in a mirror for five minutes without looking away. 
you'd be amazed what'll come up. It may be, this is stupid. Why am I doing this? Why did I listen to that guy? Or it could be some emotional stuff. I've seen people start crying. I've seen people that literally couldn't get more than 10 seconds. They're used to looking at themselves in the mirror to get ready. Now they're doing it to deep, deeply look into their soul. It's, it's more unsettling than you'd realize. But if you can't sit in stillness with yourself, then everything external is going to try to fill a void that can, it can't fit. And, you know, you can talk about faith. You can talk, I believe that what you seek is in you. That's this gym. What you seek is in you. We're going to unveil it, unearth it in a process of mind, body, and spirit. And in a process that allows you to be okay, not being okay. Because sometimes that's what it takes. Most of the time, unfortunately, humans, we don't like change. And it does take a little bit of pressure, a little bit of pain, and a whole lot of accountability. What's the biggest sacrifice you've made? And I, I know we talked about this a little bit earlier, but if you had to identify sacrifice in the ATF journey, what would the biggest one be? I think it would be, you know, as an entrepreneur, there's a lot of times that I, like raising money uh, for a for-profit something where your people, your stakeholders are getting, I mean, we're giving them ROI and impact and they're getting a tax write-off. But I think sometimes... When I'm passionate about something, I believe in something, I'm not selling, man, I'm inviting people into the story. And it works really well in this scenario. I think at times I've looked at some other business opportunities that I've had to say no to that probably would have padded my pocket um, and probably would have been maybe equally as exciting. I don't know. Um, And I've just had to say no to them. And uh, I've said no a lot to a potential TV show in here. I mean, the nine-week training program, we are going to do a hard knocks HBO training camp sort of theme where you're episodically following each athlete or that we're a high arc of this. And at the end of the nine weeks, they're all going to try and summit a mountain or do something. That'll happen. But I've had to say no. If I just was worried about doing it as fast as I could and raising all the money, we would have done it. But Everyone that has approached me, the production companies, the networks have all, it, I, I felt like I was selling my soul and, and, and that's not fair to these humans and their stories. And it's also something that I want to be really stingy about making the right choices. And so I think I've said the, the sacrifices, if you want to call them that are just saying no to things that are probably personally beneficial gonna, along beneficial. the way. Yeah. Is there a moment along this journey that you felt like things really changed for ATF? Was it the upstanders? Was there a speaking gig that really blew open new, new opportunities? And as you said, it's not about racing to do this as fast as possible, but is there a moment that you felt like, yep, that's the tipping point for ATF. We're, we're in a new place now. Oh, internally for me, uh, it would be stopping for Brian after that parking lot. Um, the part of the story I didn't tell and the upstanders uh, does sort of tell is I was cutting through that parking lot to avoid a traffic light. Uh, because I was late driving home. Uh, I was upset. My problems were so big. My wife was on the phone calling me and the girls were screaming and the food was getting cold and the this, that, that, every rational excuse to not stop. But as I, again, I don't recommend cutting through parking lots to avoid traffic lights. Yep. But as I did, I saw out of my peripheral vision, this, this man without limbs, without legs and a wheelchair. And I just, the gut, my gut told me, Hey dude, you got to stop. And instantly in my head, I didn't rationalize myself away from that prompt because I think you have two brains and the harmony between the two functioning together in tandem is where you find your greatest purpose and your greatest alignment and your why. And my why is frankly to inspire people to look at the way that they look at themselves to become the change they seek. And in this moment, I stopped. I ran over to this man, scared the crap out of him. And I said, man, 
you know, I don't have much time, but I want you to come in and train. I'm working with some of these guys. And what, what dawned on me for my, I'm going to give you an internal one. And then an external one is these tipping points. The internal one for me was this, this understanding that you can serve without compassion, right? You can go and volunteer and that's a good thing. You can go into a soup kitchen, whatever that is, but you can't offer compassion without service because compassion interrupts you. Right? Like I think about the life of Jesus and Jesus was in interrupted. He was the busiest man in the world. And yet every time he was interrupted, he was present with the person in front of him and connected him with him in a way that was, I always say this, I say church in the wild. Like I don't do well inside the walls of a church, man. Like Jesus rolled with 12 disciples that were rough, dude, that were, that were not good guys. Right. And that's where the divine made its work on earth. So I want to lean into the fringes and that, that acknowledgement of that, that opportunity to be able to serve was, was massive for me. The external facing one, I would say was upstanders. Um, but what that did, the floodgates of just the visibility on the program, uh, was significant. And then I, I think really, if I can just be bold enough to say with you and people like you brands in this local DFW community, like philanthropy buckets are tiny. But marketing buckets, right, are, are far, far more vast. And when you tap into good alignment, like I use this example, Leonardo DiCaprio, global climate change, we know that. Tesla, right, making a lot of money doing eco-friendly stuff. And then somebody in Iowa planting trees. How does that triad come together? Leo can point at, at the, it needs some probably good PR specific to this Iowa group. And the Iowa group can use the money that Tesla has in a socially innovative way. And now all of a sudden the intersection, that Venn diagram is where... Uh, amazing stuff happens. So that's what I would say is it's like the, you've done this brilliantly. You don't go, Hey, we're going to go make something viral. You think about positioning the message in a way that creates a social equity that people can't help, but have a conversation around every dinner table in America. We did this with our Doritos commercial for the Super Bowl. We didn't make the, the final for that, but when we released it, Frito-Lay called around Memorial day. And they were like, wow, this had 70 million views and this is so great. And we'd love to give you some more awareness. I'm like, <clears throat> 70 million views. Like we need more awareness. Really? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I hung up, <laughs> I hung up the phone. I was with that one employee that I talked about earlier. And she was like, oh, what, what, why did you hang up? I said, they'll call back. And I was like, Oh God, like Jerry Maguire moment. Like yeah. they better call back. <laughs> and, and she called the lady from Frito Lake calls back. And I said, Hey, uh, she said, I'm sorry. Did I lose you? I said, no, no, no. I hung up. She said, I'm sorry. Did I offend you? Did I offend you? And I said, well, you didn't offend me, but it kind of feels like exploitation because now it's convenient for you to tell a story of veterans around Memorial Day. And all I'm asking is for your investment in us that a dollar per share, right? Per video on the video capped at what? And she's like 10,000 bucks and you have a week. And I say, hey, we'll have it by tonight. And we did before midnight. And this is where the law of a thousand true fans comes, comes in. It is about those that are going deep, those that are loyal to you, those early adopters to be able to engage and, and, and re-engage and reinvest in them because they're your, that's how you create this peer to peer platform. They are your very altruistic, organic, holistic marketers. And that created this plume of momentum. And it gave me leverage now to go to the Anheuser Bushes, the Starbucks, the Mizzen and Mains. And, and I mean, you believe in what we're doing. Your team is here volunteering more than probably any other corporation that we've ever had. And they have real relationships with these athletes and our trainers and our staff, and they're very much an extension of us. And so when we think about charity done well, that's it. It's about getting a bunch of people together and doing life and your unique gifts of your company, corporation, or you as an individual mm -hmm. is what I need. It's not actually the parts of you that you think you're so talented at. It's actually the parts of you that are probably the things you don't want to talk about. <laughs> Head just blew up. 
Where do you see ATF in 10 years? Like I mentioned, I think there's a certified trainer in most gyms in America that can say, hey, you know, this disabled pop, pos- you know, this community, the adaptive community is served victim on a silver platter, right? Especially the veteran. Hey, take these pills, right? Take your PTSD and just go home and go away. And when, when um, Paul Ryan and, and, and Bush came to the gym, that's what Paul and I talked about at length was this trap. Like if they make over like 12,000 bucks, they lose their disability. Mm -hmm. It's like, how are you, how are you encouraging these guys to become, you know, full people again, Yeah, people again, contributors to society when this is what they're hamstringed by. So I think about 10 years from now, you know, the veterans, especially with the invisible scars, the discredit, their need for help, they are coming back with a lot of invisible scars and emotional scars and PTSD. I think they swore into an oath of service for our country and the best opportunity for them to be decommissioned and have a way to provision for themselves and their families is to take this certification, is to become certified and train this population. That 10 million American number is actually uh, supposed to double in the next decade. Diabetes alone and amputations alone is going to account for half of that, 5 million. That's scary, man. Wow. So, so let's not look at healthcare. Let's not look at government. Those systems are broken. Let's look at private sector, not as charity, but private sector to reinvest, to create good business. When I met Howard Schultz, I sat right across from him and I said, hey, you're not in the, uh, you're not in the business of hiring veterans because it's charity. You're doing it because it's good business. I'm in the same business. I want to take these people that have pushed to the fringes, like Emmett Pryor, C5 quadriplegic, very little dexterity in his hands, right? Most impaired athlete. He takes public transit two hours to come here to work out for an hour to take it two hours home. He pushes part of that too in his chair and he's by himself. I mean, that's a guy that deserves a management position if you give him the tactical technical skills and training. So that's why I'm humbled. That's why I'm inspired by these people. And the 10 year vision is to have this thing be so cash positive that the not-for-profit is just a way to seed capital to pop up new locations. And I think that the narrative as well as on its way. I look forward to that vision coming yeah. to life and being a part of it in any way that we can. If you could go back and tell yourself one thing at the beginning of the ATF journey, what would it be? You don't have to machine gun everything. <laughs> Discernment. Yep. Um, you, yep. you, I'm sure, have experienced much of the same scars. It is, you know, the same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. Um, and if, if your greatest attributes are so far out in front, I use the, I hate these stupid fidget spinner things, but the fidget spinner is on an axis. It's perfectly symmetrical and that's why it spins so freely. But if that was like Mickey mouse ears, right, it would boom, 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 boom. It would stop. So if I think about my life in football, it was set up. I could, you could look back now and honestly take inventory and go, Oh, I see why this thing came crumbling down because the physical was all the focus was out in front. The mental was just barely focused on anything but football. And the emotional was like, yeah, I'll get to you later. Mm -hmm. And so it was a recipe for disaster. So it's not that at times you won't have one of those vectors out in front and you may need to flex into that more, but the awareness of why you're doing that back to the triad with the, um, Leo and Tesla and Iowa tree people, <laughs> that intersection is the supreme nature of the mission. I think the intersection between mind, body, and spirit in the self is the intersection of the, your supreme, your supreme self showing up. And that's when those are, that are important in your life. They're going to be at the best benefit as well. So following on to that, um, I'm curious if it's the same theme. What's been your single biggest regret? I think it's the biggest regret I would say is feeling like I needed to do more to be worthy. Um, Those early years, like 
one of my coaches I work with out of New York, we do a weekly call. It's a, a Zoom call. And then I watch it back. And he's been amazing at just guiding me to these huge revelations in my life. But he said that, hey, remember, we're human beings, not human doers. <laughs> and, and again, being an, un, an underdog and overachiever in football and, and always looking to prove people wrong, that mindset worked for me in certain ecosystems. But as I became my own worst enemy, it was like the shark in the water. If I stopped swimming, I was going to get eaten. Yep. And so if the doing uh, isn't preceded, isn't superseded by the, the being, that being part has to be out in front. If you come from a place of being, then the inspiration, the enthusiasm, that is active and you know you have the discernment to go, yes, this is right for me. It's clear to, to, to act to, and to do. But I think the biggest regret that I would say over the last five years is me doing things more out of the need to validate myself or to prove something to someone when really, who was I doing that for? You know, it was actually just exhausting myself. Um, and the motivation was just a bit off. And now as a result of offering myself that compassion, loving the little DV, the guy who, who was abused and I think who developed this, I, I would not have made it in the NFL had I not been sexually abused. I guarantee it. You know what? It fueled me so much to need, to, so that everybody would talk to me about my football career so they wouldn't see that fractured boy underneath. That boy who was scared that people would find out that somehow I was less than, that somehow it was, it, it made me not a man. Um, that was all stuff that fueled the football career, but it also fueled this addiction to cope. And so you can't have one without the other. Um, I don't regret a lot of that pain, but I do regret the need to have to validate myself on a daily basis when I was just being the slave driver and exhausting myself. The uh, the way that I've seen that in myself is I picked up meditation a few years ago and it was actually yoga, meditative yoga mm -hmm. that brought me back from the brink of a complete breakdown in mm -hmm. those early years. Uh, there's just so much going on, personal things, professional things, business. Yeah. And I was redlining every day. Um, info at mizzenandmain.com was forwarded to my email oh. for customer service <clears throat> and, oh. and, and, um, and it was, stopping and breathing and the the process was difficult yoga poses and breathing techniques yeah. um one-on-one -on -one. and uh we had five minutes left in a session and he said just um lay down on the yoga mat and um he said we just have about five minutes left so we're gonna do a few more things and the way I was operating in that, I was like, uh, I'm, this isn't, I, I'm not fixed yet. I, I don't know what's going on. What's, what's going to happen. And I got to go and where's my car parked. And, um, I fell asleep Wow. just sitting, laying down on a yoga mat with that level of anxiety about what was happening next, him just having me count my breaths. I just fell asleep. And I, st I see that I'm not nearly as anxious as I was then, <laughs> but there are times I don't meditate nearly enough, but I will sit down and meditate and I will just pass right out Yeah. because passing, just stopping yeah. everything else, not looking at my phone, not being engaged in anything. Yeah. My brain says you need to stop right now. Can I give the audience a, a tool that we use yeah. here? Yeah, please. This is anytime I walked into this group of veterans that started their training program on Tuesday, a couple of days before this. Um, and I said, hey, how many of you guys can recognize something in your physical body, racing heart rate, sweaty palms, lump in your throat, tightness of your chest, whatever that is. Can you recognize that before you could ever assign a name, like a, a word as a feeling or emotion? And they're all like, yep. I'm like, well, me too. 
Okay. And I said, so I want to give you guys a tool. The next time that you feel uh, disconnected, disassociated from the present moment, because what post-traumatic stress specifically does, especially trauma-based is it, you, you fall victim to the shoulds. I say, don't should on yourself because the should says, Oh, I should have done that in the past. And I'm in fight or flight. Cause I should have, should have, should have, should have, or I should do this in the future. I should, 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 should. And I, my, my parasympathetic, my parasympathetic, para sympathetic, excuse me, nervous system is, is, is not turning on, mm-hmm. right? Like you, you get into this fight or flight. And so I, I gave the guys this tool. As soon as you guys feel disconnected and your mind is racing, that incessant train of thought is telling you that you're not good enough. You're in this, this, this immediately go five, four, three, two, one, five things you can see, four things you can feel and literally say like, and you don't have to say it out loud, but say clock, right? Door, chair, then go to the four things you can feel. You can feel your, your feet and your socks and your shoes, right? Maybe you touch your hair. Maybe you feel your shirt on your skin. Then you go into three things that you can, uh, that you can uh, hear. All right, I can hear you know, these headphones. I can hear the stuff out there in the gym. I can hear the little fridge here in the corner that we have running. Now, two things that you can smell. One thing, what does the inside of your mouth taste like? Take a deep breath. Welcome back. Because in the time that it takes to go five things you can see, four things that you can feel, three things you can hear, two things that you can smell, one thing that you can taste, you cannot focus on anything else. You're actually, your conscious thought, you've basically given your brain, which is a monkey that's been stung by a scorpion, a drunk monkey that's stung by a scorpion wielding a knife, until you can give it a tool like a mirror to go and get curious and quiet, you actually can't get grounded in the present moment. Just that alone, if somebody just exercises that for the next week, their stress levels are going to change. Mm-hmm. They, didn't, they don't have to call it formal meditation, right? They can say, all right, hippie, you know, we don't, I don't need that. You think about a Marine as they come in here, there's been blown up combat engine Marine and you're going to tell him about meditating. No, no, no. We'd start with the breath as an anchor. We start to give them and equip them with tools and we kind of slide in the back door. They don't realize they're doing it until all yeah. of a sudden they're like, man, this, this works. Yeah. And those are the tools that, again, I get a call from a guy that says, man, I just made it through an MRI machine. They didn't have to give me any drugs because I used your breathing techniques. Like, man, congratulations. Think about the next time that your wife is pissing you off and you need to consciously respond rather than unconsciously react, elicit that pattern mm-hmm. and it works. And then you can make that more automatic and you don't have to stop yourself before you yell or yep. before you get pissed. Yep. What brings you the most joy every day? My girls, yep. my girls, parent, parenting is the hardest thing in the whole world. And yet what the yeah. joy it, it's it's the worst math you're like man 90 percent of the time it's a kick in the balls mm-hmm. but the 10 percent makes it worth it and yeah. if you're not a parent people are like that sounds stupid mm-hmm. but man it, it's indescribable it's indescribable yeah. man uh, my littlest is three and this morning first thing 6 a.m she looks at me and goes daddy i'm getting my ears pierced today and i was like part of me was like you are like oh, the dad and you're like oh my god she's growing up and and i said yeah i said are you going to be brave and she said well i need you to come so i can sit on your lap and you can hold my hand but i'll be brave and it's just like swoon you know daddy mush yep. right there but my my girls it's it's indescribable it i was not a kid person before we had my son mm-hmm. um he's just turned 2 and we have a daughter who's 6 weeks old and i I love being a parent more every day. Yeah. It's also more trying and more exhausting <laughs> as they learn no and they have their personality and everything. But yeah. 
man, the the joy is is overwhelming. Well, Jack's mobile now. Oh yeah, yeah. And it, it's so many people say as soon as they start walking, push them down. You don't want them walking. <laughs> I I well now he's your buddy, right? You're well, like, sure. let's go work in the yard. But I as soon as he started walking, I felt like I loved him even more and was able to enjoy the process of being a parent. Mm-hmm. I, I I don't know why I felt bad that I had to carry him everywhere. Mm-hmm. There's this sense of I he he's not autonomous. Mm -hmm. Um, and as soon as he started walking, it was awesome. Yeah. I love it. I I have loved more every minute, including the little attitude that develops, Mm -hmm. as you said, 90% (laughs) kick. Um, yeah. So I love asking this question. What is your most embarrassing professional moment? When someone offers you something for free, you're like, Oh, we got to do it because it's free. Well, there's a cost. There's a cost. Yep. There's an opportunity tax there. And what it was, was these desks that we had this tiny office. I had like four employees in, in literally like a, a closet and she got these desks donated from this school and they were awesome. Uh, and they had these like insane fluorescent lights, like underneath the, you know, so like lights where you're working and all these things. I didn't know the lights were in there. And when I told this, this employee, like, no, please, I measured, they do not fit, do not pick them up. She went ahead and picked them up anyway. And so when they <laughs> showed they're free. up, they're free. So we have to. And so I come into the gym and I'm looking and these are, they're like shoved in and it is hodgepodge. It made our closet into a broom closet, like a tiny little corner. And I didn't handle that well. Uh, I took the desk out to the gym where, of course, we use like things like sledgehammers on big tires. And um, my way of disposing of it was to swing the sledge uh, to make sure that we could fit it in the trash can outside in the dumpster. Well, I didn't remember those fluorescent lights. Uh, I forgot those were in there. And dude, I hit this thing and I exploded. It, it was like a sound studio, like who you were recording the stage sound. <laughs> it was just, and glass is flying everywhere. And I look, and my poor employee, I look, it looked like somebody shot her puppy. Like it, it God love her for forgiving me. Of course. Um, uh, but that was, we had no HR department, thank God, yep. uh, back then. Yep. Uh, but that was just one of those moments where I'm like, what are you doing? the end of the day. And I, I was uh, humbled and in lovingly way to just apologize. And she accepted that. So that was embarrassing. That's wonderful. I wish that was on camera. <laughs> yeah, me too. Do you expect to be doing this, um, ATF experience for the rest of your professional life? I think so. In some effect, I mean, look, I, I'll be on the board. No doubt. I think my active role, you know, I'm always looking to scale stuff and, and, and preserve that sparkle. And I think that the greatest leaders are those that are building something, uh, to pass on to someone. And, and, you know, those that are typically doing so in a way that they're forgotten, uh, those are typically the ones that are not forgotten. Um, and I, that, that's, this will always be a baby for me. Yep. Um, but I have to, I can't squeeze it. Like you said about your son, right? Like if you try to keep him one size and put him in a shoebox, one, it's not going to happen. And it's just going to be painful for you. Yeah. Um, and so that's where I'm at with this. I think that what I do, whether I'm working with an athlete in the gym, standing on stage, uh, or podcasting like this, my hope is again, that why it's to inspire people to look at the way that they look at themselves and with it, honestly, and non-judgmentally in a non-judgmental way to become that change that they seek. If you care about this chair, right? Don't expect somebody else to take care of it. You know, us as Americans, if we care about this country, then let's be accountable to the change that we seek, yep. you know, and represent it on a daily basis. Amen. So last question, uh, well, last serious question. Yeah. How do you want to be remembered? You know, one of our athletes in our last class painted this amazing, amazing um, 
picture of these shadows coming over the the mountains uh, with this rain clouds. And then on this uh, dedication kind of piece of wood, he put this Hunter S. Thompson quote, and I love this. This is how I want to be remembered. Life should not be a journey to the grave with the intention of arriving safely in a pretty and well-preserved body, but rather to skid in broadside in a cloud of smoke, thoroughly used up, totally worn out, and loudly proclaiming, wow, what a ride. Perfect. And a, a perfect encapsulation of a very deep, deep set of questions. So um, how can people follow ATF? How can people engage with you guys? What are some of the social handles? What's the website? Yeah. And then also you as well. Yeah. Team ATF.org. Team ATF. They can follow Adaptive Training Foundation on Instagram, uh, Adaptive Tribe on Twitter, Facebook's Adaptive Training Foundation, and myself, just my name, David Vibora. Um I'd invite anyone into the story and that could be buying a t-shirt, right? And that money goes and is allocated to these, these scholarships in our programs. It could be, um, sharing our stuff on social media. It could be that simple. You know, it's not about equal contribution as it is equal sacrifice. And mm -hmm. I mean, sacrifice as far as what it is that calls to you in your heart. Um, if an athlete sponsorship is something that you're passionate about and you have the resource to do it. Great. Um, there's a lot of ways that I think we've done some creative alignment, like JP Morgan is built around events and, and that's where their kind of money goes to and support Boeing. Who's one of our amazing sponsors. They're very programmatic. So they want to sponsor athletes similar to you guys. You're like, we want our team to work with the athletes we sponsor because we want to go that deep. That is an awesome way for these athletes that are getting a free thing to see the investment that goes into it. Not only did they take a spot from somebody else in this heaping stack of people that have applied to our program, but they also realized, because some people said to me, oh, don't make it free. People will just piss it away. They won't respect it. I'm like, yeah, but if that person's sore and they were paying for that session that was scheduled and they're sore, they're like, well, I'm paying for it. I can cancel or I can just not show up. Where I'm like, hey, you're taking this spot from someone else. Someone else better on you, yep. you're going to be here. Yeah. And that's, I think what I would say. Uh, I said that was the last question. I think this would actually be really interesting to hear from you in a, in a, I know we're wrapping up shortly, but mm -hmm. some folks who don't have someone in their life who has a physical handicap and mm -hmm. some folks who don't necessarily know what to say to a veteran, yeah. you're around a lot of people with physical handicaps and you're yeah. around a lot of veterans. What would your, and you don't clearly speak for everybody, but from your experience and what yeah. you've seen with a lot of people and a lot of civilians or those who don't have disabilities, what would you say is the best way to interact with them? And I know it's treat them like a whole person yeah. and, and uh, I, I get that, but do you have any tips or, or suggestions for people who feel like they, they might offend or yeah. they don't know how best to um, bridge that gap to start that conversation? Don't worry about saying the wrong thing. Just say something. Walk up to, even if you stutter, even if you're like, I, 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 they'll be like, it's okay. Like the ki kids do this boldly, right? Like I brought that Marine Brian out who yeah. has no legs to my um, daughter's kindergarten because she wanted him to come for Veterans Day for bringing a veteran to lunch. And kids are running up, right? They're not bashful. They're like, oh, what happened? Mm -hmm. And he's like, well, you know how, you know, Spider-Man fights the bad guys? He's like, well, I got to fight the bad guys and I won. And they're like, what? That's so cool. So I tell people this walk up to somebody and go, Hey man, what happened? Just boldly. Like, how did this happen? What happened? You know, can you tell me your story? And you know, the, the whole walking up to a veteran and saying, thank you for your service. That's fine. But again, it, it's something that seems a bit too easy or a little bit disingenuous. It's like, you know, that's kind of flippant. Mm -hmm. I think the, the way to position that is to talk with them 
boldly, hey, what happened? Tell me your story. Love to get to know you, whatever that thing is. And then at the end, figure out your way to thank them. Yeah. But ultimately, let's live in a way that points to those that didn't come home. You know, the Carry the Load March, which is about restoring the meaning of Memorial Day here in Dallas, over 30,000 people come out after there's been national relays that walk all month leading up to it from West Coast in Seattle and, and East Coast in New York. Uh, it culminates in one night, it's 24 hours of marching, it's walking. And I'm out and I'm, there's, I'm by myself, there's two guys in front of me that have packs on with all these names of men that they lost. And the whole trail that we're on is lined with those small American flags. And as I came up to these two men, I said, hey, what's the best part for you? Can I ask you just boldly, like, what is that? And without missing a beat or even stopping, the guy in front looked at me and he says, when I see a civilian bend over to pick one of these flags up that fell, that's enough for me. And just walked off into the darkness. I had to sit down. I mean, I goosebumps right now because I, I, there was this whoa moment of that's enough, man. It's not about what you say. Yep. It's about the way you live that honors what it is. And you don't have to be robbed. Do I want our country at war? No, man. Yep. No. You know, that is the core of this. We want freedom is not free and we want the privileges. So let's live in a way that respects what those people did in that sacrifice. Thank you. That was great. So rapid fire, we only have a little bit of time before you turn into a pumpkin. <laughs> so the first thing that comes to your mind, uh, I will try and frame it up the best way. Okay. Uh, and if you can't think of something, just blurt, blurt anything out. <laughs> How many hours of sleep do you get a night? Six. What would you use the gene editing technology CRISPR for? And the call out that I have to say, because I've gotten some crazy answers, it's still in the confines of reality. You can't fly. You can just edit your genes today to address something that is who you are. The permanent pump, bicep pump. Oh, best answer yet. <laughs> what is your favorite fiction and nonfiction book? Oh, nonfiction is Eckhart Tolle's Power of Now. Um, fiction is The Things They Carried by Tim O'Brien. It's actually fiction and nonfiction. He takes yeah. nonfiction Vietnam stories and then puts a little bit more into them so that you can uh, empathize <laughs> with those that were in the foxholes. Brilliant. What is your daily music playlist theme? Oh man, I, I, right now I'm listening to like electronic stuff that is like high pace, high intensity. Like it just, it's pumping through my veins. I'm doing a lot of hiking right now, getting ready for Kilimanjaro. So I think part of it is what I have in my headset is just this keep moving, keep moving, keep moving. I'm sure people will be shocked to hear that. <laughs> what is your wake up drink of choice and your wind down drink of choice? Yeah, the wake up would be grapefruit juice. I, I have this um, juicer that's a squeezing juicer deal and I make them every two days. I make like five or six of them and they mm -hmm. last me for a long time. I, I'm all about some good vitamin C. Uh, the wind down would be bourbon. Man, yeah. I'm just me you have a you. favorite bourbon? It, Consistently, Angel's Envy, their rye yeah. is phenomenal, but Booker's, I, I, I'm just anything, anything brown would be good. What would your last meal be? Hmm. Last meal. I love cereal. <laughs> I, I love cereal. O's, the, the O's that are like, they're so crunchy. They like shred your roof of your mouth. I, I think that's it. I could eat cereal every meal for the rest of my life. Yep. I actually don't buy cereal because I would eat it every it meal. It is so dangerous. Do you have a pet peeve? Inauthenticity. Um, just be you. Favorite podcast besides this one, this obviously. One, Founders 15. I do love Lewis Howes. I've, I've joined his podcast. I think he's a, a ball of light for a lot of people. Um, I'm actually planning on launching a podcast coming up yes. um, that will be unique. There's actually going to be a buddy of mine who's 
a bit heavy, let's just say more than 300 pounds. And, um, Fat Randy is going to be on a treadmill uh, encased in fiberglass the entire podcast. So every time you tune into my podcast, the video cast, you're going to be able to hear and see Randy in the background. And week to week to week, you're going to be able to chart his progress. Because this is going to over a year. And Randy will come on the show at certain times. But while we're talking, he has to be working out. Was this his idea or yours? Uh, it was mine. Okay. And poor guy's going to be punished. There may be a puke bucket to start Good. on the side. But he will be monitored Good. medically. He won't die. Yeah. Fat Randy. Bless. <laughs> what do you think your Amazon percent of monthly uh, household spend is? All of it. Uh, I shop at right. Amazon and gas stations. Yep. Those are the two. What TV show could you watch over and over and over again? <sighs> I don't have much time to watch TV. I, I, yeah. I like, I, I mean, the, the truth is, is if, unless it's a game, uh, you know, I, I gotta say this, uh, admittance, I'm a bachelor guy. Because I, my wife, I, I, no, you're you a bachelor do. guy. It's okay. I'm a bachelor guy. <laughs> you're a bachelor right. guy. I recruited my <laughs> wife over, not the other way. Love it. Uh, what's your favorite article of clothing? Hat. Any specific type of hat or just a hat on your head? It, it, typically it's a backwards trucker hat. Yep. That's that Cali in you. Yep. West coast. Mm -hmm. Do you, this is a stupid question for you. Do you love or hate cardio? Oh man, I hate cardio. Oh, that's I, not what put, I expected to hear. Put it this way. Cardio for cardio's sake, yeah. like getting on something because I'm going to do cardio. Like I have to be creative. Yep. I don't want to move unless there's something that there's, you know, like there's just some goal oriented piece that's besides just burning calories. Got it. Would you rather fight off 100 duck sized horses or one horse sized duck? <sighs> oh man. I think it'd be the, the one horse sized duck. Just Go after one of them. Yeah. Just yeah. I only have to kill one. Yeah. And, and I, I picture myself like 300, you know, where you're like backing yourself into yep. that corner and then you go for the throat, right? The mouth opens. Boom. We haven't gotten that graphic yet. Uh, <laughs> what's your favorite destination to travel to? San Clemente, California is, is my paradise. It's where we moved from. Yep. Uh, it's this little Western village by the sea. I feel like it's a little slice of Hawaii kind of on mainland and it is really good surfing. And last but not least, what's the best gift you've ever received? You know, one of the Marines from this program who's no longer um, with us, he died in a car accident a little over two years ago, um, Sergeant Jason Arwine. So I come from three generations of Marines. Um, I'd like to think if I hadn't put on that football helmet, I'd have been a Marine. Grandfather fought in three wars, Lieutenant Colonel, put me to bed every night to the Marine Corps hymn. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I, I'm a double dog uh, through him and through my family. But Jason, who knew this, uh, he gave me an NCO sword. And uh, for those of you that don't know, like he, he was an enlisted man that was given to him. And it was nine years later that he gave it to me. And they say that as a Marine, you know when that time is right. And uh, the fact that it had been nine years since he got it and the fact that he gave it to me, and you imagine uh, the dust was kicking up in the gym. Real in dusty. My, in my eyes uh, at that moment. And it, it's at my house. I, I was a uh, guest of honor last year at the Marine Corps Ball, and I was able to use that sword to cut the cake. Um, technically, the youngest and oldest Marine come up to cut the cake together. But it was just, it, that that's a gift that it's so much, it's just so much more. I know what that is. I have sand from Iwo Jima at my house. Uh, I, I, I revel on that stuff. And it's not because it's, it's somehow like I put them on a pedestal either. It's, it's that I, I think that we all have an inner hero. 
And those are opportunities for me to see men that were trained to be something greater than themselves as a collective fighting force. And the Marines being the oldest, uh, you know, in our country. And I think that's why I love that sword and that gift for me is so much more than just that sword. It's wonderful. David, thank you. This was extraordinary. Honored, man. Always appreciate you and just think that you're doing amazing things and you're a change maker. So thank you. Likewise. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. You can find me on Twitter at Kevin S. Lavelle, and you can also go to founders15.com for show notes and other episodes. Thank you. Thank you.